Well, we're back. This is Lindsay, and you're listening to As We Speak. It's 2019, coming up on the last week of January. It's the first podcast uh, I'm releasing in two months. It's a long time, a long wait. Um, took a long break to uh, uh, enjoy the holidays and visit with family and friends and uh, calm down a little bit, you'd say. So I'm excited to be back. Today, our first guest of the year is Brett Cicello. He is the founder of Nito Design. They are an architectural design firm. They use the Passive House system, which is all about maximum energy efficiency and uh, the best envelope design in a, in a building, particularly residential, but also commercial buildings uh, that you can get. It started in Germany. It's a fantastic system. I'm somewhat familiar with it. And uh, Brett's a leading uh, figure in uh, promoting Passive House. He's, uh, he's an instructor as well. And so we spend a lot, of, a lot of this podcast talking about that system. And we go into quite a bit of detail. And uh, so if you're thinking of, of building a house and you'd like it to be sustainable or energy efficient, net zero, all those things, uh, you'll probably find this quite informative. We also talk about other issues around sustainability. We talk, touch on uh, topics around uh, community planning a little bit as well. And, uh, you know, generally uh, unpack things, what I like to do. I just want to just say a quick thank you to everyone who has downloaded the podcasts and listened to them. There's no shortage of interesting and talented people here in the Okanagan. And uh, I look forward to shaping new conversations, uh, building a sense of community, really finding out who we are as a community as, as we're going through so many changes in the last uh, few years. I'm new here. I've only been here four years. I moved from Alberta. I have to say I'm very happy to, to live here, to call this my home, and uh, get to know the people in the best way that I know how. So thanks for listening. Here's the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Here's Brett Cicello. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. A pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? It paid paradise, put up a parking lot. It took all the trees, put them in a tree museum. And they charged the people a dollar and a half just to see them. Seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. I'll let you introduce yourself, but of, <laughs> of Nito Design, is that right? Yeah, yeah. We started the company now seven years ago with a particular focus on high performance to passive hosts to ultimately trying to hit the goal of making all homes and buildings uh, net zero or ideally net positive. That's that's one facet of it because that is really just touching on the, the energy side, but um, the other side is 
you know, to be truly sustainable, it is much more than just energy. It is all the uh, the materials that go into the, the construction, along with um, what you how you're dealing with water and, and so on and so forth. And so, um, our particular focus has certainly been energy because of all of those different um, aspects. That's where the greatest impact can be made. Uh, but once you know, uh, once you've figured out how to address the energy side of things, then uh, then these other uh, doors open, and it's really um, thinking about even the, the small things like embodied energy of all of the materials that you put into the construction. So that would be uh, life cycle analysis. Yeah, yeah. So cradle to grave of how how was that material. Um, the raw resource pulled from the earth, um, uh, processed, manufactured, distributed. Uh, where did it come from? Was it shipped from halfway across the world? Um, but as well, the once it's actually installed on a project, um, what's the health of that material? How does that affect the, the humans actually living within that space? Is it full of uh, VOCs, uh, which are volatile organic compounds? Um, does it have formaldehyde in it? All of these things that when, when designing and, and constructing these higher performance builds, uh, they are extremely airtight. And although they have continuous ventilation to make sure that there is fresh oxygen and carbon dioxide is always being removed, if you fill them full of a bunch of products that are off-gassing, uh, that's not necessarily a healthy environment for the occupants uh, either. So, um, okay. yeah. Before we dive into that uh, sort of um, that that subject, can you can you tell me about your background? Where did you grow up? What's your you're a prairie guy like I am, small town. Um, tell me how you how you found yourself living here in the Okanagan. Yeah, so I grew up in a, a small little town called Karndiv in uh, 20 minutes from North Dakota and 20 minutes from Manitoba. So pretty much the middle of nowhere. Uh, cowboy country, um, small, small town, less than a thousand people. And uh, I was fortunate enough, uh, I have two, two brothers as well, uh, and um, was fortunate enough to have uh, parents that... that did well in in uh, in life, I suppose, um, and uh, they were able to send all of us to school. And uh, typically, you grow up in a small town, and you you might go to Regina or Saskatoon or Winnipeg, you know, the closest major centers. Uh, whereas we were all very lucky. Um, we just kind of said, "Well, I want to go over here, and I want to go over here, and I want to go over here." And they said, "Well, as long as your grades are are good, we'll we'll make that happen." And so. I was fortunate enough to uh, to be able to move to uh, Toronto and uh, live. I went to Ryerson University, uh, which is right in the downtown core, and uh, that's I would say where my real education began because um, architecture school was one thing. Walking through the city, that was the that was the education just staring at all the buildings throughout the city, um, the urban planning, um, the area that I lived in the first two years, uh, we joked, it was, it was just, it was a block south of uh, 
uh, Regent Park, which at the time uh, was uh, the largest like projects within an urban core within all of Canada, uh, similar to like the projects in Chicago per se, and. Um, that was very eye-opening. We, we, we called our place the corner of crack and heroin and uh, we had big steel uh, sliding gates before our security door uh, and um, it was at, at 17 years old I grew up very fast in that first year of my university. So um, you went from the wide open spaces of the prairie straight into you know the jungle the jungle yeah the urban jungle yeah yeah <clears throat> like, um you know had to be careful walking at night uh had to be careful walking to school in the morning um it was it was it was a rowdy little area um but you know living in that area it was um it was it was perfect in that it, it exposed me to um many different cultures many different just you know like i had grown up in this kind of perfect little you know community of uh largely white people uh not to say that that's perfect but it's just the the storyboard and uh it was a monoculture yeah monoculture and small town where everybody knows everybody uh, to just the complete opposite of the spectrum uh which i fully embraced I, i thought it was amazing uh, but that definitely shaped me going forward because the one the one big thing that I saw um, while going to school was this particular neighborhood called Regent Park uh, that in its design, the urban planning of, uh, of the overall larger area, but as well as the architectural design, uh, there was a, it was so obvious to me that that was the the cause of why that area became the projects. It, it was a design problem. And what it really came down to was the definition of public versus private space. Uh, there was really no private space uh, for anybody to really take pride in. So what happened was with it all being public space, nobody really took ownership or care of individual areas around their, their suites or units. And how does one, um, you know, want to be lifted up or you know aspire to something greater than that, if if there is no sense of ownership anywhere, and you're just surrounded by everybody who's kind of stuck in this, you know, the same cycle of uh, of really really poor poorly laid out housing. And so, as I went through school, it certainly shaped me, and and uh, for my thesis in university. Uh, I decided that I wanted to attempt, which was way too big of an endeavor for a, for a, a student, I think, at that time. But I wanted to take on um, the redevelopment, uh, so an urban planning exercise of Regent Park, which is this huge area. So um, just, just so I'm clear, um, so you're in an urban environment and uh and through your education and your own observances you're you're discovering that there there's some there's a dynamic here there's, and you you identified it as uh, a sense of ownership and this and this distinction between public and private spaces and so that becomes and and, and how design can actually impact that mm-hmm. in terms of like on on the personal uh experiential level yeah. So this this now you now you bring in aspects of human psychology as well. Yeah. 
how we think about our, our spaces, how mm-hmm. we think about um, volume, mass, uh, movement, transportation, and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and, and so within that, that area of the city, it was, um, again, there was no sense of ownership. Um, to any of the the areas around the buildings, so nobody took care of them. Um, so that that's that that really stood out to me that like this was a just a really really bad design problem, which was you know harming all of these these people in this neighborhood psychologically, right? Um, so in my thesis, I I, I tackled that project. I, I took on the redesign of the urban planning. Um, in ways to create public versus private definition of space, uh, to create a sense of ownership, to give pride, um, uh, but as well, rather than having, uh, and this is then in the next area that I lived in Toronto, it's one of the most successful housing developments within the world. And it was the complete opposite. Regent Park was just an area that was... um, uh, the the lowest income um, uh, bracket of, of people were basically you know had no choice that that's where they had to live, whereas the next area that I lived, uh, which wasn't that far uh, from from Regent Park, um, just south of it by about ten blocks, was actually one of the most successful housing developments in Toronto, and it was a complete mix of, and, and I use this as a uh, as an example for for my urban planning kind of approach as well as the design of one of the buildings that I because ultimately I was studying architecture not urban planning so mm. I had to design one of the buildings um, but it was this other area um, and it how it was done was it was number one all uh, all people from uh, every income class from every demographic every race and, but it was a mix of market for sale units uh, right beside a building which might be a co-op building, which might be the next building, um, social housing. Uh, but what it did was that, uh, and then all, so they had density, there was a really, really long strip mm-hmm. of uh, park space. Okay, uh, and ju- just again, so <clears throat> so I've said, so, uh, so everyone understands the, the context here. So you're looking at um, uh, a district, you could say, of the city, like a large area, like many, many blocks, and looking at, you're, you're studying things like transportation, uh, all the multiple uses uh, of that space on, a, on an urban scale. Yeah. Um, and then as you're progressing deeper and deeper into the des- design analysis, you're also taking uh, one building, and is that is that right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So then, exactly. you, so yeah. you're working into a, a, a finer level of detail. That's right. Yeah. And then within that building, now you now you're be, now you begin to look at the actual users. Okay, who's actually using the spaces, and and, and how will they use it, and, and yeah. how. How can you design with those uh, factors in mind? And, and how do you create a, a better community as a whole where it is, it is a mix of demographics? You're not sticking just you know, a, a, you know, a, a lower income population in one area. Everybody is mixed. And so the result of that in this uh, other neighborhood was that it, it, it gave 
it gave people within that community the idea that, oh, I can aspire to that because next door there might be a doctor or a lawyer living next to them, whereas that the next person might be, you know, um, might be on welfare, but they could actually see it right next to them that, you know, if you um, were, to, were willing to put in the work, you, you could achieve that. Uh, whereas in the previous design of Regent Park, it was just everybody was, you know, um, there, there was nothing to aspire to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 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 it's, so it's a, it's a different, it's a different approach. Uh, like, uh, I mean, there's, you could say on the, on the one hand, you're creating a ghetto, uh, yeah. and, and, and reinforcing those, uh, vertical social hierarchies of, people with wealth and influence and social mobility and those who don't have access to that. Yeah. And you're and you're turning that on its side and saying, what if we all choose to live with in an intentional community? That's right. Yeah, and the whole community helps helps everyone, right? Mm-hmm. And so that that was exactly it. Um, this this other area, it, you could you could see it. Uh, it was just a a happier place to, to live. There was better transportation. It was better laid out. There was definition of public versus private space, which gave that sense of pride that, okay, I might not be there, but I've got my own little little space here and I'm going to keep care of it. And, you know, I, I can do that. I can achieve that. And so... I could become a doctor. Yeah. Potentially. Or whatever whatever life I'm currently living... Uh, it doesn't have to be a life sentence in a, in a, in yeah. a sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, through th- those, like, like I said, school was one thing, but it was actually the environment that I lived in where I learned the most. Um, the walking through neighborhoods and the walking through buildings and my head up in the sky, just seeing what was possible. Um, uh, of how to influence and create better community within uh, you know, major urban areas. But as well, it, it doesn't matter where you apply it. It, 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 it will work anywhere, right? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, that was, that was, that was school. Um, and then and fast forward now yeah. to, to where, where you are today. Uh, you, you're living in the Okanagan now, and your company has been uh, going now for, for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll let you take this where you, where you like, but I think, I mean, I'm interested to know, uh, how those lessons from your education, um, how are you, how are you seeing those, those, the value of those, uh, of that education, uh, in the work that you're doing now? And particularly, what, what do you see here in the Okanagan in terms of, um, things that are working versus things that aren't? You, you mentioned uh, a lot of um, a lot of important um, issues that go into building sustainably, including paying attention to uh, your material choices and water um, uh, water usage and, and stewarding that. Um, so, you know, where where would you like to go from here? Yeah. So, how that that experience influenced our, our current work. Um, is that, you know, by by good design, you can you can really change um, it can change people's outlook on life, and you can inspire them to um, to help others uh, throughout life as well. And so, in our current work, um, 
our, our practice largely uh, is focused on single-family residential uh, because, as I, as I said before, I'm not a licensed architect, so that's kind of the, the area that I'm allowed to practice in um, uh, without being licensed. Uh, but as well, we also are working, um, because of our experience in, um, you know, over the many years now of specializing in passive host design, um, we've now been asked to help uh, larger design teams on larger buildings, which are uh, have that uh, social housing component to it. Okay, um, so maybe explain what passive housing is for people who don't know. Sure. So, so passive house is um, it's a building methodology. It's a way of approaching the design of a building to minimize its its overall energy use. Um, the, the reason why passive house in particular focused on energy was, was simply because of uh, all of the, the impacts that a building can have on the, the world as a whole. Um, energy use is by far the biggest impact. It, it massively outweighs uh, water, materials, um, black water, like uh, these, these other things that are equally as important, but if, if you... Um, if you want to attack uh, the biggest piece of the pie, energy is the, the biggest possible impact that you can have. And that would be energy that goes into the operation of the building, but also energy that goes into the creation of the materials that go into the building? Um, so Passive House is more so focused just on the ongoing operation of the building. Okay. Um, and and I, I joke that like you can, I've said this numerous times, you can literally stack barrels of oil and put enough spray foam in between those barrels of oil and you could make it a passive hose. Uh, that's within the rules of passive hose, but obviously that, that's not, you know, it, it's kind of uh, ignoring the bigger picture of uh, what we're trying to achieve here. Uh, but passive hose is solely focused on ongoing energy demand because that is the biggest possible uh, impact it can have. Uh, that being said, though, again, all of those things, uh, material, water, they're every bit is important, but if you're going to start somewhere, you start with the, you know, the, the biggest piece of the pie. And um, so Passive House is, it's, there's, there's five principles to Passive House. Um, and number one is recognize that there's been one constant in all of our lives from the day we were born. In seven and a half billion people every single day we wake up there's one constant and it is that giant fireball in the sky that comes ripping by every single day it heats up our our day and then cools off at night and so recognizing we have this this major heat source um, and in heating dominated climates like Canada like most of Europe United States uh, large portions of the United States um, we should be utilizing the sun. Um, but by harnessing the sun, um, you need to design the building in a very particular way. So it's based on five principles. Number one being super insulation. So it has to be a, a very, very well insulated structure. Um, but then number two, it has to be airtight. And, and why it needs to be airtight is because Inside a building, you can almost think of air as energy. Air, uh, you're either heating a space or you're cooling a space. You're heating or cooling that air. 
So it's in your interest as a homeowner or a building operator to keep that energy as much as you can inside the building or utilize it in a way before it exits the building. Um, so with super insulation, you can have all the insulation in the world, but if you have a window open in the dead of winter, it's kind of pointless, right? So, so like a thermos would be a good example. A thermos, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So uh, very well insulated and airtight to keep that energy in, inside the space. Of course, what else comes into that overall building envelope is you need some of the highest performance and best quality windows and doors. Um, ideally, you are harnessing more gains from the, the windows than you're actually losing. So you're, you're, you're gaining more energy over the, the, the net of the year uh, than you actually lose in, on an annual basis. Uh, that's really going to help to minimize how much energy is required to, to heat the house in the first place. Next point is then um, you've created this thermos. Uh, it's gaining more energy than it's losing. Um, but it's very airtight. So you need to bring in fresh air. And so that system is, uh, it's called a heat recovery ventilator or an energy recovery ventilator. And basically all it does is, um, as you bring fresh air into a home or building, before exhausting any air out of the, that home or building where normally it would be exhausted out of bathrooms um, or say kitchens, um, you're basically, taking that exhaust air, but before it leaves the building, we're, we're, we're stealing the energy from that air and we're dumping it back into the incoming airstream. Just the energy, not the air, so the air's not being mixed. You don't have to worry about smells or humidity, moisture being mixed. It's, it's literally just the air. So imagine uh, if it's 20 degrees Celsius on the inside of the house and it's minus 20 degrees Celsius outside, uh, with a heat recovery ventilator, as that cold minus 20 degree air comes in and it passes through a heat exchanger, uh, uh, the cold minus 20 hits the plus 20 air. And if the heat recovery ventilator is say 80 to 85% efficient, uh, that new air that's coming into the, the building, it gets warmed up from minus 20 all the way up to say 16 to 17 degrees Celsius. Uh, just by a very passive little, you know, ventilation fan. So now you only need and you only need to introduce enough energy to bring that air temperature from 16 to 20 degrees. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, a huge, huge bonus. Now all of a sudden you're not just wasting all of that energy, which is how we've, you know, effectively been designing homes and buildings for, for 40 years. We just dump all that. We just paid to heat all that, that air inside the house and then we exhaust it, but we don't actually rob any of the energy from it. So, um, does, does also like, uh, you know, you know, I might be getting ahead of things here, but building like how the building is situated on the, on the land must be also a factor. Certainly, right? Um, orientation. Yeah. Um, everything from orientation to climate to altitude. Um, what happens if you're in downtown Vancouver and you've got a 20 or 30 story condo tower that's blocking all of your southern windows? 
So when designing passive house, you actually have to take into account all of these, these different factors. And designing a passive house in Vancouver or, say, Victoria, which are um, some of the warmest climates in Canada, you'd have to take different measures than what you might have to in Kelowna or um, you know the Northwest Territories, where it's just that much colder. Um, so it, it's, it is specific to its actual site that you have to design these buildings, and you have to take into account items like shading from, in BC, we have mountains. What happens if the mountain blocks the sun for four hours in the middle of the, you know, in the first four hours of the morning? Um, whereas in the prairies, that sun would be up at seven or eight o'clock in the morning in the dead of winter, and it would shine all day. Here in the valley in Kelowna, it's it's gray quite often in the winter unless we get to really cold temperatures. So so all of these things get factored into the model. Yeah. So we've covered. You've got super insulation. You're you've got. Uh, um, you're paying attention to your materials, you're creating an airtight environment, and you're capturing uh, any uh, heat that you can through a heat recovery or energy recovery ventilator. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And so that leaves, we've got two more principles um, to cover for five. Well, and, and then high performance windows and doors. High performance windows yeah. and doors. And, and then the last is, um, is thermal bridging. Uh, the, Best way to describe this is think of a, a motorcycle uh, cruising down the highway, winds blowing through your hair, uh, but that same wind on the motorcycle engine, the motorcycle engine actually has little cooling fins on it. And the idea is that if you're going 100 kilometers an hour, the wind is actually uh, blowing through those cooling fins. And because it's a combustion engine, it's creating tons of heat that wind blowing across those cooling fans will help to dissipate that heat and cool off that engine so that it doesn't overheat. So the best example is think of every single condo tower that we designed to date. They all are generally, um, Cologne is a little bit newer to, to taller towers. Generally, our, 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 uh, most of our multifamily buildings are four to five story wood frame construction because it's the, the cheapest way to, to build buildings. Uh, but now as we get more and more concrete towers, which are 20 and 30 and 40 stories, think of the cantilevered concrete balconies. Every single one of those ba balconies is basically like a cooling fin on that motorcycle engine. Although a motorcycle, you generally don't drive through the winter. But you know, you've got this condo tower that has to survive throughout the uh, winter but when, you know, it's, it's not, uh, we're from the prairie so it's a hell of a lot colder out there, uh, but still we can get minus 15 and minus 20 and so these condo towers are, we're basically designing giant cooling towers. So, so does that mean we can't put balconies on buildings any longer? Not at all. It's just a matter of how do you design that that connection of the, the balcony to the balance of the structure so that there is a thermal break. There is, instead of it maybe being entirely concrete, how do you put in a, uh, uh, a different material that still is structurally sound because it's got to be supported, um, but it has a better thermal performance so that it's okay. breaking that loss of energy uh, through that. And it's, it's no different than say a, a plumbing bent stack. Uh, through a roof. It's it's just a pipe. Um, imagine you got a, 
your, your sweater and you've got a hole in your armors through that sweater. That is like a thermal bridge going through that, that sweater. Um, and so all of these different little holes and penetrations, they, they result in huge amounts of energy loss. So it's often it is impossible to eliminate all thermal bridging, but the goal is to simply minimize it. Okay, so you gave that example of, uh, of balconies on high-rise uh, towers. Um, so, so passive house, it sound, you know, it, it started with single-family homes, but it, it, it also applies to, to larger structures? Yeah, and, and <clears throat> passive house actually lends itself better to bigger buildings. Um, and, and the reason why is because bigger buildings have, uh, it's, it's called a surface area to volume ratio. Um, the, the, the overall sweater covering that building uh, in comparison to the volume as well as then the number of people that are in that building, the number of appliances, um, all of the people and the appliances, your computer, your laptop, your dishwasher, your, your cooktop, your showers, all of these actually end up heating a large portion of the building and, and they're considered internal heat gains. Whereas on a single family house, um, typical family is two to, in this day and age, two to say five to six people. Well, that, that, that surface area that's required to, you know, encase those two to five people, it's nowhere near as efficient as a multifamily building uh, in that encasing that, that single family house you have four exterior walls one roof, maybe two planes of roof, and then you have a, a floor. Mm -hmm. Whereas the sweater going around a, a large, large building, mm -hmm. if you're in a condo unit that's, uh, say, in, in the middle, it's not a corner unit, but even if you are a corner unit, you may only have two exterior walls that are exposed to the, the elements. Or, okay. or one exterior wall exposed to the elements if you're an interior unit. So it ends up being a, a, a much more efficient and actually more cost-effective way to actually achieve passive house. So it, it lends itself very, very well to, to larger scale buildings. Actually, um, uh, yeah, from a cost, cost perspective, it is uh, uh, much better to build bigger in that sense. And so you, you take Kelowna for example, um, where we are at a point where there's only you know the the sprawl into the hills um it's it's coming to an end there are only so many plots of remaining land um, and what we know is kind of the easy easy pickings land where you can put up a, a single family rancher um that's coming to a close and as, as the, so the availability as of a, land is, is just it's geography it, is going to dictate uh, what are what the future of Kelowna is going to look like? Yeah, yeah, partly. Um, and now you um, mentioned uh, also about transportation. That transportation is a is a big factor. So I want to make sure we touch on that. But before we get to that, um, I'd like I'd like to allow you to finish your thought on 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 this part about building up into the hills. Um, but then I'd also like you uh, if you could comment on. Um, uh, if we could go back to the beginning as well, where you talked about the importance of um, the public, the sense of ownership. Mm -hmm. So when you're building multifamily uh, projects, 
Uh, I'd like to hear you, if you could comment on um, when you're putting people into higher density uh, developments, which is new in the Okanagan. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you design around that so that people have a sense of um, community, um, but also a sense of privacy as well? Geography-wise, um, the Okanagan, Kelowna in particular, were bounded by Okanagan Lake, the mountains, and uh, ALR land. And so the, the buildable land is, is coming to a close, and now going forward, um, there there's going to be, you know, there has to be infill. There has to be density because we've we've kind of exhausted all of the easy land. Um, and with density comes these opportunities where passive host just makes so much sense. It's it's it becomes that much more affordable to construct it when you're building it on a, on a larger scale. So th there's the opportunity for th for this city, hands down, and actually any city uh, in the world is. Uh, they're all densifying. We're we're trying to densify them because um, the the cost to build out and sprawl is way higher than if you uh, to service those areas to run transportation services, um, fire trucks, ambulances. It's it's just you know we wonder why our where our governments are you know can never balance the books. It's because we keep sprawling out and sprawling out, um, but. That's that's you know a Kelowna challenge. That's a that's an every city city challenge, right? Um, but in Kelowna, the next twenty years will certainly be densifying the core and the major urban centers throughout the city. Um, with density, there is this issue of you know sense of ownership, and. Uh, it becomes more challenging because the cost of land is going to rise uh, inevitably um, and giving people um, the one good thing this, the city has in particular is this private open space requirement that you know if it's a three bedroom unit it has to have X number of square feet of private open space and a two bedroom one bedroom and so on and so forth but ensuring that is um, can be challenging because you, you again you think of um, the, the condo towers um, that private open space is often it's one of the first things to go the variances that are that are asked for on those those you know defined numbers um, but at the same time the one thing that Kelowna is is fortunate to have is we actually have a ton of beautiful parks we really really do we have this great access to the, the the waterfront with all these small little beach accesses we have, we have parks throughout the city um but that doesn't mean to say that you, you still don't have to have that definition of public versus private space and uh i i think the city of vancouver has uh well, what do you mean by that? You don't need to have that definition. No, you you, you do. Or you, or you yeah. do. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's just simply like, um, so if you have an outdoor space, there is a buffer between, say, the public realm and, and your private space. You're, if you're at, at grade mm -hmm. and you're in a multifamily building, say it's a condo tower, you're right on the sidewalk edge and you're five feet away from that road. Mm -hmm. How do you design it so that that space still feels private? 
and it isn't just part of the public realm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that that's really key in building design. And so it also gets into the human psychology, the behavioral side of a design, where you, as a designer, you have to place yourself in the position of the user, and and in a sense, use your imagination to say, okay, well. Would I feel safe in this environment? Would I feel yeah. safe if I stood here surrounded by, uh, you know, maybe there's a, a buffer with landscaping and so on, uh, trees or a wall or a partial wall or something like that. Yeah. Um, so these, these other factors begin to, <clears throat> to take shape as well into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you, do, you think the, do you think, in your opinion, is the city doing a good job of, um, from a planning perspective? Uh, you know, we... You know, there's a few factors that go into controlling what the built environment ultimately becomes as a community, where we decide that together. Um, you know, we have a few things that help us to, that help to control and direct that conversation. One of them is that we have uh, a building code that we rely on, uh, that's provincial. Um, and then at the municipal level, we have uh, uh, the planning department. And they set the rules for all the building, uh, uh, building and planning uh, bylaws and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to other jurisdictions, um, you know, Kelowna is one city amongst other cities, and 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 Vancouver has a long history of. Well, they're they're very well known for having made some decisions way back in the '60s and the '70s about how do we want our city to look. 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Um, what, in your opinion, uh, if, if you were looking at Kelowna's uh, planning, how are they doing on, on that, Mark, in terms of... Uh, uh, what, what, what do you think about, about what the future looks like for Kelowna? Are we, are we setting <laughs> ourselves up for success? Yeah, it, it, this is a, a tough question, and I honestly don't have, have a, you know... A, the right answer, or what they should be doing. Um, my my biggest concern, uh, and I'm in in that kind of I guess younger. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite millennial. I'm a Gen Xer, and uh, I do think that Kelowna needs to to densify, and certainly that's the the tact that uh, City of Vancouver took, and there is no doubt people love living in the city of Vancouver and part of that is is that density it, it, it just makes for a very vibrant community but on the flip side um, being in this younger generation I I design homes for a, a living and my wife and I we don't know if we'll ever own in the city of Kelowna you know or it will be you know, a forty-year-old uh, tiny little condo, uh, just because we're the cost at which uh, is being asked to, mm. to to pay for what is minimum code construction, it's it's ridiculous. So housing affordability is is a, it's an irony in a sense when you talk about sustainability, affordability, transportation. Uh, density, all these things are yeah. It's a di- very it's, dynamic. It, it's a hard one to like. How do you how do you address that? Well, yeah. I don't know if um, the candidates, mayoral candidates, forum just last night. They all said, "Well, build more, build more." Well, has that worked in any other city across the world? I haven't seen it yet. Well, um, you if know. I understand it correctly, um, as it's been explained to me. Um, 
there, there's different arguments. There's different sides to the argument. But the one I think that you're expressing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, the idea is that um, if we continue to allow uh, the development and construction industry to, to build, that will um, basically add supply to the market. And that supply will allow, uh, as people move into, into the, this region, it will provide that liquidity in the market so that people who have homes, let's say, that they've held for decades in the downtown uh, area, um, they, can, they, they might choose to relocate mm -hmm. and, and free up some of that housing stock for redevelopment and, and, and densification. That's 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 as I understand. That, yeah, that's that that's the um, I think the thinking behind it, but I don't think it's worked out all that well. In, in all honesty, um, Airbnb has changed the game. Housing is no longer housing; it is an investment. And when you look at our condo towers that are going up, seventy to eighty percent are being sold to Vancouver uh, investors, and, and so. How do you, how do you people, build? Do you um, think people are aware of that? Um, that number? Uh, they should be. It's it's posted right on you know the, the major uh, media um, here here in town. But so um, seven or eight out of ten uh, units are being bought by investors outside of the Okanagan mm -hmm. as a way to generate revenue and income. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's a tough one, right? Like, um, I, I believe in density, but I also, if, if there's this, uh, Kelowna is one of the fastest growing municipalities within, uh, within Canada. If it's one of the fastest growing municipalities, then would it not be in our interest to, to and, and, and there is this investor interest willing to spend the, the dollars on it. Um, why aren't we demanding that we we have better standards for construction like why is it that the city of vancouver which has a much milder climate has higher construction standards than than Kelowna, which has a much colder climate and, and and the reason i say that is because we often look at the um just that sticker price on the on the for sale sheet but we completely ignore the ongoing op operating costs of that building and so even when you look at old condo buildings here in town, you're, you're seeing that like just the monthly maintenance fees are three to four to five hundred dollars. Uh, that doesn't even touch on what it's actually going to cost to just simply heat your, your unit in the winter, mm -hmm. uh, which is largely just going to be electric baseboard in, in most of these old buildings with no ventilation, no nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's yeah, it's a Sorry. it's a tough one because I, I, I realize I recognize what I'm saying I'm saying yeah. like build density build better that costs more mm -hmm. building density costs more because land values come up so yeah. like I said I don't have the answer and, and I um, think maybe that's and that's okay you know I mm -hmm. think that's uh, that's valuable actually but it sounds to me like there needs to be if there isn't already a conversation happening around this to to reassess all of the different dynamics uh, that we're undergoing, and I'm 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 curious to know. Do you know of of anybody who's holding those conversations who are who are taking into account um, concerns from developers, uh, the the municipal um, planning jurisdiction, 
um, to the marketplace and financial as well. And then looking that at that as a whole in terms of sustainability. Is anybody having that conversation that you know of? Well, I, as I believe, I, I believe that that's the sustainability leadership council's been you know initiated. Um, I'm not. Uh, but I don't know what discussions have been going on there, as I've not uh, been, a, been a part of that. Um, there's certainly, there's been talk of the energy step code, uh, which of course relates to s sustainability, but, uh, and I, my understanding is that staff at, at, uh, at the city are in support of adopting that, but unfortunately it's it's political and so when it was presented to uh, council just recently uh, there's an upcoming election so it, it was pushed off and that's 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 a missed opportunity in, in my mind because Vancouver's already decided we're just we're doing our thing and they've, they've taken they've, this yeah. step right they've uh, got their own building code yeah and, and in behind that you know who's going to influence the smaller communities throughout the province any more so than the next biggest city which is uh you know victoria's kind of off on its own because it's on the island in a completely different climate but beyond that it is Kelowna who's really needs to take a leadership role and say that yeah we need to be to be building better um if we're going to create sustainable communities, we have to build better. And we, we speak of being a, a tech community, um, but when it comes to building, uh, we've evolved, the building code has basically evolved from 1970, we were building with two by four baton poly. Fast forward 2018, and we are building two by six baton poly. There's been some other little improvements, no question, but that that's kind of like that's the evolution of the construction industry. So you've added like two inches, two inches, yeah, two inches to the conversation of yeah. ba of bat and poly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, the thing so this, is, the, the tools are there. They're, the tools they're are totally there. And there. passive house is is one of those. Tools. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's simply one of the tools. Right. Um, um, we use passive house as a tool, but we also there's other building methodologies where we take you know the best practices from those. Um, Living Building Challenge for one uh, in particular, and even LEED has really good intentions. But uh, um, I, I think as a sustainable community, the thing to keep in mind is that um, the two biggest energy and emissions loads in the world today. Number one is transportation. Number two is buildings. Transportation, that's a tough one in the city because of just how the, how the city evolved. We've got a highway rate running right down our core. The bridge, which was supposed to last for however many years, is already backed right up every single morning if you're coming in from West Kelowna. It's, it's, a, it's a tough, um, tough uh, problem to, to solve. Um, but buildings within our you know, construction community, um, again, we embrace the tech community, but we seem to uh, not want to innovate or improve anything within the construction industry. The status quo has been a, it is just accepted. Okay. And it's, um, yeah. So let's take that as, let's take that and see if we can move that, move in that direction a little bit. So transportation and technology, and you mentioned affordability. Uh, you're a business owner here in the Okanagan. 
and yet you question whether or not you'll be you'll be able to ever have access to uh, what I would consider affordable housing. Affordable, right? affordable housing. Yeah. In other words, having the option to choose the sort of uh, housing that that would work for you, for your lifestyle yeah. and, and for your needs. Yeah, yeah. Um, like you take. Do you see any solutions in there with tech and transport and affordability? Do you see anything? Uh, any dynamics that we could play with, uh, or we what what should we be talking about uh, on on what, in terms of like what what are the things that we can do? Maybe that's maybe the better way to, to put it. What are the opportunities? Where should we be looking? Yeah, yeah. Well, little little incremental improvements. Um, like I think that the drop bike program here is it's an excellent program, and it was hugely successful. But um, I, I'm I've really got into biking, um, and within the downtown core, um, biking is perfect, and the city is doing a great job in embracing uh, kind of bicycle networks throughout the city and uh, getting people out of their cars is, is going to. Uh, will certainly increase uh, affordability if we're not spending endless amounts of money on and uh, um, building more roads. Um, and I, I know that uh, if I were to say that to my parents, they would be, you know, they're, they're just of that generation that yet you have to have, uh, you have to be able to drive everywhere. Um, but I think that that's a small, small piece to it. Um, Building better, it, it's about ongoing operating costs as well, as I had mentioned earlier. Um, you know, if you buy a brand new condo in, in one of the towers going up, I think at minimum they're probably, you know, half a million dollars for a, a one bedroom unit, um, a wall of glass, a giant thermal bridge coming out of that balcony, you're probably still looking at, you know, in the wintertime, two to three hundred dollar energy bills. How, how is that sustainable? You know, if how does that person end up spending dollars back in their own community if it's just going to the utility? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and, and also, again, if I imagine myself in the shoes of a developer, uh, those, are, those are costs that if you don't have to, to bear those costs as the developer, and, and you can and you can basically ask okay can the user take on this cost because they're they are it is a user cost mm-hmm. uh, can we offset it to them we I think we should start bringing that into the conversation as well mm-hmm. this question well, about affordability it, it does hinge on the cost of money eventually yeah like everything is basically priced now with the idea that if it's a single-family house uh, the price is based on whether or not it has a suite in it or not and that's just part of the price now. So, um, and, and same with, um, if you look at the marketing for all of the latest condo towers, they front and center say, rentals are allowed in this building. So they're building that into the price. Mm-hmm. You know, And um, there, are, there are innovative models on the market. And I mean, I think this goes back to your, your, your early ex- experience way back in Toronto where you looked at different ways of uh, creative form factors for how people live together in in the same space. Yeah. And, and, you know, actually, and yeah, like Central Green is actually a great example of that. And, and that would be excellent to see that type of development where there is market rent uh, right beside co-op, right beside social housing. Um, 
in in the community that I lived in in Toronto, that was the most vibrant and one of the most successful communities in the world, uh, done in the 70s. And so it's great to see something like that. You know, you mentioned uh, transportation, uh, building. I'm just going to leave it open to you here to, to, to talk about maybe some of the challenges that you face professionally or, or personally in the community. Um, and uh, and how do you how do you see the your own future in the Okanagan? Do you do you see this as as a, a place where where uh, you can be a part of of a larger conversation, actively engaged, actively moving forward? Do you see things progressing here in positive directions? It's it's slow. It's extremely slow. Um, for example, the bulk of our work is not in in Kelowna. Um, very little of our work is actually in Kelowna um, and, and that's what I find admittedly um, it, it's a bit frustrating um, there's a lot of talk but there's really not a lot of action and uh, I, I think of again I'm speaking from you know the, the, uh, uh, from the business of design and architecture and I, I look at some of the, the recent buildings um, that have been constructed here in town that are um, could be perceived as kind of crown jewels within the, the downtown core of Kelowna um, with government funding that are minimum code buildings that you know are not comfortable for their occupants and are going to saddle their operators with really high ongoing operating costs. Um, so in that regard, I, I do find that it is really, really, really slow. Um, and it's, it's frustrating um, to the point where um, as I, we were discussing earlier that I, I, I've spent quite a bit of time um, doing public speaking engagements, um, trying to um, create an awareness of it, but it, it, it's, it's the city's slow to adopt. And, and that, you know, inevitably that will change. Um, and I think you have to take Vancouver as, as, a, as a really good example um, because Admittedly, Passive House is still new uh, to this region, and Building Better is still new. We're just starting to absorb the idea that, that, that this, this can have an impact. And um, I think the first conference that I went to uh, for Passive House in particular in Vancouver was in 2011. And at that point, there were no Passive House projects. Uh, now in Vancouver, the city of Vancouver, the public is demanding it and developers are, are, are listening. And so there are multiple uh, towers going up to the Passive House Standard. There are uh, hundreds of single family homes going up. Um, there's been a real adoption by the public because I think there is a, a greater awareness uh, that comes with being in a, in a larger urban center. Um, that will come to Kelowna. We're, we're the next in line, there's no question, and, uh, and I hope that continues to spread across our country because the further away you get from that ocean, it, it gets colder. So it is perfect for uh, communities in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, where you know, it's, it's much colder than, uh, than, than our fairly mild climate here. That means we've got some opportunities here. Oh, certainly, yeah, yeah, and and always, right? Like mm -hmm. it's um, life is a continual and endless improvement um, in, in anything one does in, in their life, right? 
Um, so as a community, certainly. Can we do better? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think little things like where there's an opportunity, to, uh, like, for example, the energy step code, which is just such a simple thing for this city to adopt that uh, has so few requirements, uh, very, to, very little to almost no uh, additional cost impact mm -hmm. for the cost of housing. We're talking like maybe $500 to $1,000 a unit. And when, you're, when I'm saying that, you have to put that into perspective because when units at minimum are going for $400,000, Five hundred dollars to a thousand means nothing in the grand scheme. Okay, right? so so just briefly, talk about the energy step code. What is it? Why does it matter? Sure, sure. So yeah, so the um, partly driven by uh, the the steps that uh, the city of Vancouver's taken by you know uh, saying you know what we're just gonna we're sick of waiting for the province to get on board. We're gonna create our own uh, um, building code. I want to mention Passive House Canada because I, I think they've been increment or uh, uh, in instrumental in getting uh, this this influenced and uh, demonstrating that this can have a great impact across our, our province. So, what the Energy Step Code is, though, is it's a series um, um, for small single-family homes. It's a series of five incremental steps. Um, each step requiring slightly better uh, energy performance for ho homes and small buildings. There's another one which is uh, for larger buildings and uh, it's four steps. But basically what it, it's starting with is step one, very, very nominal improvements. It's basically still minimum building code construction that we've been doing for you know for years and years and years. Um, the only difference really is is that um, the main difference is is a slight energy improvement. Uh, we're requiring that all homes be blower door tested. That that's to determine how airtight they are. It's one of the simplest, easiest, cheapest things you can do that actually can guarantee that like you know when somebody's purchasing a home that's that's the proof that you're getting a well-constructed uh, home or building um, and then lastly the uh, uh, they're requiring that uh, an energy model be prepared and the idea behind that is that this is going to take time there's an entire industry that needs to be trained um, but by starting the conversation as to well how much energy does that house consume how much energy does that house consume? Um, it, it, there's just a, an awareness of, you know, oh, okay, well, if I changed this little component, that has that impact. And so as we slowly train the industry, that's really step one. Mm -hmm. And ironically, Fortis and BC Hydro will actually have grants and incentives to pay for a lot of those 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 requirements within step one. So that's why I'm saying it's it's such a low cost uh, thing to actually do and, and, and implement. Um, step two, it gets a little bit tougher. Um, you have to it has to be that much more uh, airtight. It has to use less energy, and so it's just step so two, step three, go higher yeah, and higher. higher and higher and higher ultimately arriving at uh, step five or step four for big buildings, which basically is, they're calling it net zero ready. And 
which is essentially passive-house. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the particular metrics of uh, performance are, are largely related to the passive-house standard. And so net zero, for those who don't know... So if, you, if a house requires... Um, I'm just going to give a, a, a rough yeah. number, but mm -hmm. say it's uh, a house requires 10,000 kilowatts in a year, um, then that house is actually, um, by the design of the house, you've minimized how much energy it needs in the first place, but then via, uh, say, PV, solar or solar panels, are going to be probably the, the biggest component to this, right. but you're now generating enough energy from the solar panels to offset the entire building's energy use over that, that year. Okay, so we're going for on single-family homes for five-step, and is there a time horizon on when they want to meet these yeah, thresholds? and this is uh, this is why I say it's slow because um, our our company Nido has been practicing passive host now uh, since two thousand eleven, uh, seven years now, and the path to net zero ready uh, step five or step four for big buildings is is two thousand thirty two. So although. We've already been doing this for seven years. We still have to wait 14 more years before the rest of the industry is even at where we were at seven years ago. Okay. And so that's why you know I, I say it's slow. And, and, and admittedly, it's, it's not easy. There's a, there's a lot to learn, and it's going to take time to, to train the industry. Mm -hmm. um, but it's... Um, it's going to be challenging uh, for the design and construction community, but again, um, we speak of being a tech-driven community. It, it's it's huge right now in, in the city. So why aren't we being innovative in in housing and building design? All right, I'm just interrupting here. I don't normally do this, but the podcast is basically over at this point. But there was something that told me just to keep it rolling. So that's what I did. So I decided to tag on a couple more minutes here, a few more minutes. Uh, I think the conversation went to an interesting place. So I just decided to throw it on here. So hope you enjoy it. Maybe we can try to get there a little bit quicker in the future. And here's the chickens. Thank you for... Uh doing what you do you you know you are taking the lead in this uh, in this sustainability conversation when it comes to design in the Okanagan and uh, so I just want to recognize that thank you very much well thank you very much Lindsay uh, I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, yeah we have we have more than enough potential within this community and I, I really believe um, we're just not we're not taking advantage of it um, there are so many talented people within this this Okanagan Valley and and we can we can truly lead um, within BC uh, on a national level and, and beyond and I think we need to, to, to recognize that it's it's time to do it yeah. Thanks, Lindsay. That's exciting. There are no pessimists in this life. There are just realists because in life there are ups and downs. And so just because you recognize that there are some downs doesn't mean that you're always, you know, down. Honestly, to me, that's where I get interested. That's where I start to get interested. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, these conversations actually don't begin 
until we get to a point like we did in a couple of times in this conversation where somebody has the balls to say, I don't know. There's a pause in the conversation. There's dead air. And you're either you're going to do one or two things. You're going to be uncomfortable or you're going to feel like a little agitated and a little bit excited. Mm-hmm. To me, that's that's the point where the real conversation comes together because we're just two people right now. Mm-hmm. Imagine if we have a room full of 5, 10, 15 people. If we can build these sorts of conversations up over time, and this is the goal for what yeah. I'm trying yeah. to accomplish, do a series like this where you've got 5, 10, 15 people all talking about different aspects of uh, a problem and everyone has their own experience of, of how they're encountering that problem. So yes, there there's plenty of opportunity to become um, maybe cynical or frustrated, right? Um, but when we all come to a place of I don't know and we can agree on one thing that all of us don't know, that's where that's where opportunity exists. That's where I think real kinetic energy exists, mm-hmm. and I think that's where that's where we have to make room for innovation, re- real risk taking. Just starting with land use. Yeah. You you mentioned um, water water stewardship. There's there's real places where we can actually begin to have these sorts of conversations and start to shift. You know. We mentioned technology, we mentioned finance, um, you know, but on top of that, it is it, it does become a question about culture. You know, why is why is Vancouver promoting, and why are they able to? Why is the public there pushing the market in a certain direction to do to do good things? Mm-hmm. I think those are cultural cultural issues, cultural questions. And to me, that's what I get excited about when I'm when I'm when I talk to people in Kelowna. Because there is an energy, there is a there is an optimism here. It's in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and th- that's the big motivator for why I want to do these podcasts and, and and get these conversations out there. Because I think the more that we talk about it, and we all feel it, I think I certainly do. We're gonna start uh, inevitably taking steps together, risky steps together, and it's just going to kind of build this momentum. And that, to me, is the Kelowna that I have remembered since I started coming here, like, almost 20 years ago. I started to come here for the summertime, and there was always something special about Kelowna. Mm -hmm. Like, we called it vitamin K, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vitamin K means a lot of different things to people now, like, whether you're into ketamine or whatever. (laughs) But it was vitamin Kelowna. Like, every time we would come to Kelowna, there was something in the air. There's the the attitude of the people is like yeah it's just a beautiful bountiful place to live yeah i often say we are uh kings and queens amongst this valley like it is uh it is just uh, within canada it is just absolutely beautiful place to live. i think what you're doing here is, is great and it, it will have an impact um, because i i do believe that we are uh, much like in the architectural design process the building delivery process Did it go?
Cause I can't 